Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... We could imagine a policy that still allows us to have the many benefits that come from immigration, but protects the people who are perhaps losing the most from that policy. Tara Watson on the economics of immigration. Tara Watson is an economist, and she's the co-author of a new book, along with Kaylee Thompson, called The Border Within, The Economics of Immigration in an Age of Fear. And the title of the book here is interesting because The Border Within refers to how immigration laws are applied to undocumented residents who are already living inside the country. So this is separate from policies at the country's borders, like the border with Mexico. Border policy would require a whole nother episode. And so that's what this book is about. What's happening in the country's interior? How immigration laws affect the lives of undocumented immigrants who are already here and the economy in which they work. And the border within also has a second meaning. It refers to how immigration laws and how they are enforced can also create borders between people, often borders between members of the same family between husband and wife, between parents and their kids, between next-door neighbors. And the book does a great job of showing how shifts in economic policy can end up having profound effects on people and on their loved ones. I learned a ton from it, and I think you'll also learn a ton from this chat with Tara. A quick note on language. We use the terms undocumented and unauthorized interchangeably throughout this episode. Here it is. Tara Watson, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Here's where I want to start. I want to begin by doing a kind of breakdown of what we know about undocumented immigrants themselves. And there's a number of things early on in the book that I believe a lot of people will find quite surprising and that also get at what you mean by the border within and the borders between different groups of people. So let's start with this. There's about 10.5 million undocumented residents in the country right now. Only about half crossed the border illegally. The rest of them actually came on a temporary visa, and then they stayed after that visa had expired. I think a lot of people are going to find this surprising, in part because, you know, when we talk about undocumented immigrants, a lot of people think of for example, recent crises at the border. But that's not actually what we're talking about when we refer to undocumented immigrants. It's a much more complicated and, frankly, a much more diverse group of people. That's right. So I think a lot of people's perception of undocumented immigration comes from a time when that was the most common path into the U.S. without authorization, was crossing the southern border. But it's really changed in part because the border enforcement has become so much more rigorous. It's much harder to cross the border than it used to be. There are also other factors related to who wants to come. And the group of people that is coming to the U.S. now without authorization comes from all over the world, not necessarily in a, in a place where they can walk over a border. And it's become increasingly common. It's now thought to be the majority of new unauthorized immigration arrives to the U.S. on a visa 
and then does not leave when the visa expires. Yeah, one estimate had it that in the year 2016, about 60% of all new unauthorized residents who came to the country came in on a visa, not trying to come in uh, through the border. So it, it seems like it's actually trending in that direction, too. It's not just that that is that that's not just like something that's always been in place. That is that is sort of a new thing. That's right. And it's in line with the fact that uh, the group of immigrants coming to the U.S. and is undocumented in the U.S. is increasingly diverse in terms of the countries they're coming from. So many more immigrants coming from Asia and Africa, for example. And there are still many immigrants coming from Mexico and Central America. But as a, as a share, it's a smaller share than it used to be. Yeah. And here's another statistic that I think might not just surprise, but actively shock some people. So if you go back to the year 2005... Roughly 40% of undocumented immigrants in the country had been here for 10 years or longer, so people with fairly established roots. The more recent estimates we have, which are roughly from the year 2017, has it that two-thirds of the undocumented population has been here for a decade or longer. So this to me is interesting because, again, I think there's a stereotype of undocumented immigrants having like recently passed through the border during one of the recurring border crises when a lot of people come to the border and the U.S. doesn't have the capacity to handle it. And so a lot of people come through. Actually, we're talking about a majority of folks who have been here who have deeply established roots here. And it's not just them. It's them and it's their families. That's right. It's sort of an ironic outcome related to this tighter border that we've developed over the past two decades, that it's much harder for people to move back and forth. There used to be more what we call circular migration, where people might come to the U.S. either seasonally or for a few years and then return to their home country. It's much harder to do that because people know that if they leave, it may not be the case that they're ever able to to cross the border back into the U.S. again. We profiled several families in our book, including a couple of families where there was a real debate internally about whether to go home to visit a sick or dying relative because they knew that even just that level of connection might preclude them from ever coming back to the United States. And indeed, in in two cases, it did cause long-term problems for the family in terms of immigration enforcement that those individuals did decide to go back home. So we're in a situation now where the humanitarian costs of enforcement activity are much higher than people might otherwise think. It's easy to say, well, someone crossed the border six months ago for a job. They're now going to be sent back home to their home country. The cost of that uh, from a humanitarian or social point of view might be relatively small. But when someone is living here, when they have citizen children, when their whole life and network is here, that's much more disruptive and harmful. Here's another statistic. 7% of all children in the United States live with at least one unauthorized parent. That's 5 million kids. And I want to be clear, we're talking about 7% of all children in the U.S., not just 7% of kids with immigrant parents. That is, to me at least, a stunning figure, but it also points to the idea that when we refer to undocumented immigrants, we're not just talking about people who came into the country either through the border or by overstaying a visa and that now are just like looking for work, 
trying to evade the authorities, moving around from place to place, and if they get caught, they leave. We're talking about families. And by the way, we're talking about American families because the vast majority of those children are themselves U.S. citizens. So it's just not so simple to separate what happens to undocumented immigrants from what happens to to families and to American families. There is no neat and easy divide. Yeah, that's definitely a major theme that we try to illustrate in the book. The children of immigrants um, are, as you said, a majority of them are U.S. citizens, not all. And they're likely to stay in the U.S. permanently. In many cases, even if their parents are deported, they will stay in the U.S. or return to the U.S. They are citizens, of course. And so the types of investments that we think about making in children in general and that we think are important for their development as successful members of society, we still need to make those even if their parents are here without legal status. And that creates a lot of tension because it, in many cases, means giving resources to families that are here without authorization. Yeah, it also means that if a parent is arrested or deported, it can just create a brutally difficult situation for the family that's left behind because they've just lost a source of income. And a lot of times it's also just very uncertain what's going to happen. If, for example, somebody is arrested, you just may not find out for a while, for weeks, sometimes months, if the person is going to be released or if they're going to be deported. So it can be tough for the family because in economic terms, they lose income, but also deeply uncertain, and it can last for a while. In most cases, it's actually men who are deported. And uh, in the case of kids, of course, that would generally be their father. And in many immigrant families, the father is the primary or only breadwinner. Um, There tends to be uh, more reliance on single earner families in among immigrants than in the general population. And so you do see a lot of hardship emerging when a parent is detained or deported. The examples that we talk about in the book include a family in which the father was detained for several months. And in that time, the family was required or needed to go on to assistance, food assistance in particular, the SNAP program. And they felt really terrible about it. They really had an ideology uh, that was about self-sufficiency and hard work. And it was just the case that the father wasn't in a position to provide for the family. They needed to rely on public assistance. Once he was released from detention and able to go back to work, they quickly eliminated their dependence on the food program. So it's um, definitely the case that This detention and the whole enforcement system can make the situation a lot worse. It's also important to point out, I think, that undocumented immigrants themselves are not actually eligible for very many programs. So in this example I just gave, and in many examples, it's the kids who are eligible because they are citizens, but it makes sort of accounting for where the benefits go kind of complicated because, of course, the the food assistance is going to the family unit and is going to be shared by the family. Right. One of the things that I think the book does so well is that it points to all of these different tensions and contradictions in immigration policy and in how immigration policy affects the economy and the lives of not just the immigrants, but also the people that they interact with. Um, throughout the economy. And this is one of them. This is one of the deep contradictions, which is that 
you know, one of the intended goals of tighter enforcement is, again, to limit the number of undocumented residents in the country. And one of the worries of people who tend to be more restrictionist about immigration um, or who are maybe people who are fine with immigration generally, but they just have this concern, is that if you have a lot of immigrants come into the country and if they're not working, then they might be um, a kind of drain on like the public fisc, that they might take up a lot of resources, you know, from the welfare state that otherwise could go to other families. But then if you actually tighten immigration policy, a lot of times what ends up happening is that you take away the income source for a family. And so it ends up having exactly the opposite effect of what it was sort of meant to do, you know? That's right. And it's important to note that the majority, the vast majority of undocumented families are working in the formal or informal labor market and are not using public assistance or if they are using public assistance to supplement to that labor market income. So it's really a falsehood to think about immigrant families coming to the U.S., not working and living solely off the generosity of the government. It actually works the other way. If you look at the numbers, immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants in particular, contribute a lot in terms of payroll taxes, Social Security taxes, and income taxes even in some cases, and don't take as much in public benefits. The one area where there is quite a lot of expenditure, again, comes uh, back to the kids. So public education and safety net programs that serve children, citizen children. Yeah. And let's go ahead and use that as a segue to talk about the labor market and the role of undocumented immigrants in the labor market. I want to first point out that it's actually hard to parse the data here because in a lot of the publicly available data that we have and that the government collects, there is not a distinction between undocumented immigrants and immigrants who arrived legally and are in the country uh, with authorization, right? So it's, it's not an easy thing to collect this data, but the book does a really good job of finding the estimates that we do have for like where undocumented immigrants are participating in the economy. So I'd love to just go through some of what we do know. Uh, and here's a hell of a data point. The Department of Agriculture has like uh, this research service and it did an estimate of how many of the country's total farm workers are undocumented immigrants. It's roughly half, literally half of the country's farm workers, agricultural workers, are undocumented residents. I didn't know it was that high. I knew that there were localized economies where it was very high. I didn't know that half of all the country's farm workers are undocumented residents. That is staggering. And I don't even have a question. I'm just kind of curious to know your thoughts on that. Yes, it is um, it is a lot in certain industries, including the agricultural industry. That's an area where the education requirements are not very high. The work is very difficult. And it is not an especially appealing job to many Americans. And so the whole industry is reliant on a workforce that is foreign-born, and many of them are undocumented, as you pointed out. And one of the thought exercises we go through is to think about, well, what would happen if we suddenly could have a situation where there were no such immigrants, and it would be really devastating to that industry. I don't think the industry would survive, at least in this current form, in the U.S. Yeah, and let me let me go to the next data point as well, um, which is that about 
three quarters of undocumented immigrants work in occupations that during the coronavirus pandemic have been labeled as essential uh, jobs. Um, in other words, these are jobs where even when a lot of the labor market was being shut down, partly to stop the spread of the virus, especially in 2020, um, these were jobs that were so critical that they were labeled essential and had to be done because they were so important to the country's infrastructure and to like the basic functioning of really crucial parts of the economy. And three quarters of undocumented residents work in those jobs. And I think it's important to point out that these jobs in general tend to be quite difficult jobs, right? They tend to be jobs with not great working conditions and that don't require high levels of education and that don't pay very well. So, yes. There's a there's a, a kind of line that um, often comes up and is heavily debated between people who are in favor of more immigration or liberalizing immigration policy and, and people who are more restrictionist or protectionist on immigration policy. That line is that immigrants do jobs that Americans don't want to do. And there's a really nuanced discussion of this debate in your book. And I'd love for you to just kind of take us through it because your answer is kind of a yes, but. (laughs) That's right. The way that many of the jobs currently held by undocumented immigrants are structured would be very unappealing to most U.S.-born individuals. So as I mentioned, they don't pay well. They have poor working conditions. They often demand very long hours without a lot of flexibility for the worker. And these are conditions that most Americans will not accept and would prefer to either not work, to rely on family or public assistance. And in many cases, Americans can get a better job. So the way that the current labor market is structured, no, most Americans would not want to do or be willing to do most of the jobs that undocumented immigrants currently have. However, as we point out in the book, It's a little more complicated because if there were no immigrants doing those jobs, it is easy to imagine that the jobs would change because in some cases, the employers would need workers and would make the jobs more attractive um, in order to get those workers. So that might mean raising the wages, that might mean improving the working conditions. And so we would expect to see some of that. But going back to the example of the agriculture that we talked about before, To some extent, there's a limit on how far you can go before it becomes unprofitable to even have the industry in the U.S. at all. So there are alternatives. You can outsource work. That's always sort of an important pathway that can happen if immigrants or other workers aren't willing to do the jobs. In other words, setting up up the production process in some other country where the labor is cheaper. Like you have that option. So you may not hire Americans at a higher salary if you no longer have access to the labor of undocumented residents. You might just set it up in a lower cost country. That's right. Maybe the country where those undocumented residents would have been coming from. Right. So that's one sort of escape valve from the perspective of the firm. Another one is that some of these jobs could be automated and Firms might find it more cost efficient to invest in the technology, robots, for example, to do that work rather than hire American workers at typical American worker wages. Another way that this might evolve is that firms could kind of just change what they do to make it more specialized, to make it 
something that requires um, more skill to produce, and therefore those firms would have some advantage in the worldwide market. Remember that many of these firms are not competing just locally, but really globally for the products and services that they're providing. And so they need to be competing with the rest of the world in producing these things. Yeah. And Tara, let me just summarize all that for our listeners, because we've just covered a lot of information. So when there are fewer immigrants available for businesses to hire, businesses end up having a few options for how to respond. And it really depends on the circumstances which response they'll end up choosing. So one possible response is to hire native-born Americans at higher wages. And I think when policymakers try to restrict immigration, that is what they will say they're hoping for. But businesses also do have other options. I mean, they might simply outsource the work to another country, as you mentioned. So there have been stories, for example, of farms that can't find enough workers sometimes. And so instead of growing their crops in California, they might end up setting up their whole operation in Mexico. And I think it's worth noting that this can have other effects, too, because if you're running your business in California and your workers are in California, well, then those workers are also buying things from local businesses like home builders and restaurants and grocery stores and so on. And your farm might be buying, I don't know, equipment from nearby stores as well. And so if that whole operation is transplanted to Mexico, you lose all of that. You lose all of the effects on the local economy, and it can have knock-on consequences that aren't great. But finally, there's this point you make that a business might just end up changing what it produces. And so if you can't hire immigrants to do the work, you might start producing things that you can automate away. So you might invest in like some robots to do the work as well, except that not all tasks are easy to automate. Like some do require human dexterity and movement. And so you might just end up choosing to produce a different set of products and maybe not the optimal products for your company to make and to sell. So it's just a, a very complex question, as you very nicely laid out there. Um, moving on, I also want to bring up this really interesting and I got to say kind of amusing statistic from the book, which is this. There are way more immigrants in the U.S. labor force than there are unemployed people which means that this idea that all the jobs that immigrants do have been taken away from native-born Americans is literally impossible. It is mathematically, numerically not possible. And what that statistic actually means is that a lot of immigrants are simply doing jobs that otherwise nobody would be doing. Those jobs would just not exist, and the economy overall would just be smaller. Yes, that's absolutely right. And... I would take it even a step further, which is that most economists think that on net immigrants add jobs to the economy or at least do not beyond the jobs that they themselves are doing. So immigrants are have a net positive in terms of the employment prospects for U.S. born people. Yeah. I want to also talk now about labor mobility, because this is a really crucial part of understanding the role of immigrants and in particular undocumented immigrants in the economy. And one of the ideas that you explore in the book is that when you have a lot of immigrants in the economy, and again, this is particularly the case for undocumented immigrants, you have a lot of people who are willing to move to where the jobs are. And 
This has very interesting effects, especially when there's either a big boom in some parts of the country because immigrant laborers can then go and supply work where the work is needed, but also when there's a huge downturn and in some parts of the country that are hit especially hard, the opportunities for work decline and immigrants tend to be very quick to leave those parts of the country. And that can be really useful for the native-born residents who are left behind. So can you just kind of explain that dynamic uh, of immigrants' labor mobility and this incredibly interesting and important role that they play in the cycles of the American economy? Sure. There's a well-known fact that in the U.S., among U.S.-born workers, people with college degree are much more mobile than people without a college degree, meaning they're much more willing to move when there is a local labor market shock. It's also the case that they are more likely to have moved uh, over the course of their lifetime or the past year, however you want to look at it. So there's this gap that exists. But if you look at foreign-born residents, and this may be even more true for undocumented residents in particular, less educated workers, those with a high school degree or less, say, are just as mobile as college-educated U.S.-born workers. So they are very mobile. They're very willing to pick up and relocate in order to find a place with better job prospects. That's important, as you mentioned, because it actually helps us equilibrate, to use an economics term, the, the economy. <laughs> so it helps us to smooth out places that are going through um, a really exciting period of growth and places that are falling on hard times when there are those shocks in the economy and people can move back and forth to to respond to them it means the the booms maybe aren't quite as high but the busts are also not quite as low and that's really beneficial to the US born workforce who as i mentioned often isn't moving isn't responding to those shocks in the same way and so the US born workers in places with a recession, a particularly deep recession, benefit from the fact that there were immigrant workers in the local labor market that have now chosen to find a better place to go. And that leaves uh, more opportunity for the U.S.-born workers who remain. So it is a really interesting, I think, and important part of the story here. Uh, There's an economist named George Borjas who has a paper called Does Immigration Grease the Wheels of the Labor Market? And I like that that metaphor of thinking about immigrants serving an important function of helping the economy kind of find its way. Yeah, the answer is yes, essentially. (laughs) It helps grease the wheels of the American labor market. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, Let's talk about the debate over whether immigrants tend to do things uh, that compete with American workers versus doing things that complement the work that American workers do. And there's a very simple example that you give in the book, and I just want to use that as a kind of a jumping off point here. And here's what you write, quote, a native-born woman who owns a small home cleaning business might be able to spend more of her time on marketing and administrative tasks if she can hire two foreign-born cleaning assistants for the price of one native-born worker, for example, unquote. So this kind of gives a little bit of a sense of how it is that immigrants can make it possible for native-born workers to maybe specialize in different things. But there's also a very heated debate about the extent to which 
that actually happens in practice. So uh, what are your thoughts on it? And in particular, as it applies to unauthorized residents? Yeah. So on the face of it, it might seem kind of simple that when you introduce more workers into a labor market, that will tend to push the wages down. So if you took intro to economics and you drew a graph of labor demand and labor supply, there's a very clear prediction there. But as you noted, the story is more subtle and more complicated. So economists talk about the distinction between substitutes, which uh, you just referred to as competitors, and complements, which is means that having someone do one form of work helps another person be more productive in a different uh, related task. And there's a debate in the literature about the degree to which immigrants that come in, and including undocumented immigrants, are substitutes or complements for those U.S.-born workers. And for the most part, it appears that immigrants are complements to the U.S.-born workforce, meaning that they help that U.S.-born workforce be more productive than they would otherwise be. And the way that we can see this is that when there are shocks, either adding immigrants to a local labor market or subtracting immigrants from a local labor market, we can then measure the productivity. Usually it's measured as the wages of the U.S.-born workforce. And we see this response that having more immigrants in general helps the U.S.-born workers. So there's a recent paper that looks at... uh, the Secure Committees program, which is an immigration enforcement program that ended up resulting in uh, many detentions and deportations. And this research looked at what happened to the U.S.-born workforce wages. And what they found is for people in sort of the middle of the income distribution, people who might be managers, their wages actually were reduced when immigrants were removed from the local community. So it actually harmed those U.S.-born workers. And that's very similar to the example that we give in the book, the hypothetical example, where those managers are productive precisely because there are workers doing this labor that they would otherwise maybe be doing themselves. There would be less labor to go around if the immigrants weren't there. On the other hand, there is a debate specifically at the lowest part of the income distribution, the U.S. income distribution, and the degree to which undocumented immigrants compete with workers who have similar levels of skills. So undocumented immigrants, as we've discussed, tend to have less education than the U.S. born. Not always, but uh, it's very common that undocumented workers, for example, have less than a high school degree. There are not actually that many U.S.-born people at this point who have less than a high school degree. And so if you think about the workforce competition that's going to be happening, it's going to be happening in that most disadvantaged part of the income distribution. And so that's, I think, a, an important cause of concern and something to keep our eye on. To date, most of the literature does not support the idea that there is that displacement, even in this most disadvantaged group of U.S.-born workers. But it's a little more mixed than the big picture, which is that immigration is really good for the economy overall and for most U.S. workers. So I I would say it's somewhat unresolved. Yeah, more mixed. And in terms of the literature and how it plays out, you know, in practice, Definitely worth paying attention to situations where if there is a large number of undocumented residents who move into a place with a high share of people who are at the lower end of the income distribution, to be open to the possibility that it might, at least in the short term, cause some potential disruptions, which doesn't mean that the right policy is to, like, 
shut everybody out or go full nativist or anything like that. But it's worth considering because it could still have that effect. And there might be other policies in general that would be useful to implement, right? That's right. So the way I like to think of it is that immigration benefits the U.S. economy overall. It benefits most U.S. workers. And if we are concerned about the part of the distribution that it may not benefit as much or may not benefit at all or may even harm, then we should be thinking about sort of sharing some of those gains that come from having this wealth of talent that comes in through the immigration with people who are less fortunate. And so it's something that we could imagine a policy that still allows us to have the many benefits that come from immigration, but protects the people who are perhaps losing the most from that policy. I want to also talk about how immigration might affect the decision of companies to invest in things like equipment and factories and automation, robots, things of that nature. You brought up an example earlier uh, of how, well, if immigration was restricted and that led to higher wages for American workers, because then there's you know more of a scarcity of work, that that might incentivize companies to automate, to invest in the kind of robots that would lead to automation. So that's one possibility. But the book also explores another possibility, which is that if you have an abundance of labor available, immigrant labor the labor of undocumented workers, well, actually then companies might also be incentivized then to do what economists refer to as capital deepening, which is investing in factories, giving those workers the equipment they need to work. And so I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious to know how we sort of reconcile these different ideas and, and if there's any guidance that we have so far uh, from economics. It's a good question. I don't think there is a resolution to the question of whether this capital deepening effect is bigger than or smaller than the opposite effect, which you mentioned, which is that adoption of new technology may be delayed because labor is a substitute. It's going to depend a lot on the types of technology we're talking about, whether, again, coming back to this complements and substitutes idea, whether, the say, the factory that we're building can be thought of as complementary to this labor pool that we have in the U.S., with immigration, or whether we should be thinking of it as substituting away from that type of labor. And that's going to be very specific to the context. That's such a great point. In other words, the idea that uh, some automation and some technology is not the same as other kinds of automation and technology, that some kinds of automation are just replacing the workers who otherwise would have done the work, and some kinds of automation are there to help the existing workers become a lot more productive and maybe to do different things rather than just the same thing that they were doing before. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a great point. It, It sort of calls to mind the idea that, like, everything we're discussing now about the effects of immigration can't, I think, be separated from other things that are happening in the macro economy. Like if the economy's booming, if policymakers are really pushing a hot labor market everywhere else, that those things matter and that the effects of immigration then would be quite different from if the economy is in a recession uh, or if there's an abundance of labor generally because so many people have lost their jobs. And so it seems to me like those things, you know, we sometimes discuss them in isolation, but we maybe shouldn't, right? I agree with that. The context is going to be very important. 
I think both the the actual economic impacts of workers coming to the U.S. at a time when there is a lot of labor demand that's not being met versus when we're in a recession and a lot of people are out of work, those actual economic impacts will be different, should be different. But also, I think the political impacts are quite different, that when we're in good times, it feels to U.S.-born workers like there's more to, to go around and there's less hostility towards uh, additional people coming in. When we're in tough times, I think it's hard for people to not scapegoat people that maybe look or talk different from them. Uh, I want to talk now about um, about enforcement and its effects on uh, undocumented residents, their families, and on the economy as well. Uh, and I want to start with this. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what exactly has happened to immigration enforcement in the last roughly 10 to 15 years. I think there's like this broad idea that under Obama, it was like at first a big free for all. And then after that, Obama became the quote unquote deporter in chief. And then Trump showed up and everything like ramped up even more so. That's not actually the reality of how this has worked at all. But it also is a very complicated story. Right. So let me start first with what's known as interior enforcement. So this is not border policy. This is not apprehending people or stopping people at the border or processing asylum seekers at the border. This is people who are already in the country, have been in the country for some time and are then found by federal authorities and then either detained or in some cases deported. Uh, What is the trend line been there for roughly the last 15 years? That's a a good question. The Obama administration started out hoping to have a major immigration win on the legislative front. And I think part of their strategy at that time was, let's show we're serious about enforcement. That will get our political opponents on board with the idea of negotiating with us over a broad comprehensive reform package. And So the form that took in terms of interior enforcement was there were a high level of arrests. They basically stayed the course of what had been happening under the Bush administration. That meant a lot of worksite raids. That meant some expansion of the connections between local law enforcement and federal immigration enforcement. As you may or may not know, immigration enforcement is solely in the federal purview by law. But during that time, early Obama, they delegated some of that authority through agreements. There were a set of agreements called 287G agreements that allowed local law enforcement to basically be representatives of the federal authorities in immigration matters in certain jurisdictions. They also rolled out this program called the Secure Communities Program, which is a little bit less of a devolution of power, but still allows local law enforcement to connect with Department of Homeland Security and the FBI whenever they arrest someone, so that if someone does appear to be an undocumented immigrant when they're arrested, that the federal authorities know where they are and the federal authorities can then come take the person and process them through the immigration system. So there was a lot more effort to keep interior enforcement high during that Obama first term. The talks in Congress eventually fell apart. And after that point, there was a real change in tactic, whereby 
there was a lot less enforcement on the ground in in the interior. So the immigration enforcement really was limited later in Obama's presidency to people who had serious criminal records and really tried to prioritize a, a narrow set of immigrants for detention or deportation. So obviously, Trump ran on a platform of um, changing that, of ramping up enforcement. But I would say if you think about the phrase, the bark is worse than the bite, that to some extent was the case in the Trump era, that enforcement did ramp up relative to those last few years of the Obama administration where not much was going on, but never got back to those early Obama levels or Bush levels. And so the number of arrests, the number of deportations by historical standards was not all that high under Trump. What was different was the capriciousness of the system. So the Trump administration came in and they said, there were these priorities on the books that Obama had. We're going to prioritize recent arrivals. We're going to prioritize people with serious criminal histories. Trump said, there are no priorities. We are going to go after everyone. We're going to take a wide net approach. In practice, that actually makes it uh, enforcement less effective from the perspective of the number of arrests and removals that can be processed because you end up... Um, you arrest a lot of people who don't have any cause to be deported. So that's right. Just you get a lot of cases that are thrown out, right? They, yeah. So thrown out maybe is a strong word that those cases still need to work their way through the system, which is part of the reason there's this tremendous backlog now. Uh, but they're likely to end in some form of relief in many cases, meaning that the individuals are allowed to stay in the U.S. And these cases can take years, decades even. Um, and so it's just not a very effective strategy. On the other hand, if you prioritize immigrants who do have criminal histories, it's a much more streamlined process for removal. And so what we see in the end is that there was a lot more fear and anxiety among undocumented immigrants because there was this perception, ad accurate perception, that anyone could be picked up at any time. And knowing that you had done everything right, played by the rules, except for the, the part about being undocumented, wasn't enough of a feeling of security once Trump was in power. The, there was just more capriciousness and chaos in the system. There were more arrests at large in the community that didn't go through any kind of jail enforcement mechanism. And in the end, it just created a lot of anxiety and fear among a lot of people who, by most measures, have lived productive and um, pro-social lives in the U.S. Yeah. In other words, people who've, again, been here for a very long time, as two-thirds of undocumented residents have. They've been here for more than a decade. A lot of them have families. They have kids. And even though fewer of them were being deported during the Trump years than in the peak Obama years, uh, it was more than in the shallower Obama years. And also, it was more like enforcement via, I don't know, psychology or something like that. It was like in, instilling a lot of fear in folks. And I always had the impression that this was meant partly to uh, try to get people to leave of their own accord if, if things became too difficult or to try to get people not to come here in the first place if they heard stories of how hard it was. Um, but your book took a look at that as well about whether or not there was this deterrent effect of you know the way that the U.S. has gone about 
interior enforcement and and also border policy. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what the overall findings were of your look at all the research on on this potential deterrent effect. Yeah, it's an important question. So to the first point, there isn't a lot of evidence that ramped up enforcement encourages people to leave of their own accord. As you mentioned, many people have kids here. They have lived here a long time. They're very tied to the U.S. and very integrated into the U.S. community. And so while these seemingly capricious enforcement efforts do create a lot of fear, they might cause people to go out less, be less likely to to go on vacation or something. They are, are very unlikely to cause people to to relocate back to their home country once someone's been here a long time. On the other hand, a, a big motivation, explicit motivation for these policies is deterring future migrants for coming in. And I would say the literature there is is unresolved. I, I don't think we really know the degree to which interior enforcement in particular has an effect. It seems as if border enforcement may be a more salient form of enforcement, meaning that's what immigrants are going to pay attention to when making the decision about whether to try to migrate to the U.S. because that's the immediate thing that they're likely to face. And I, I'm not sure how much people who come to the are coming to U.S. or thinking about coming to the U.S. are foreseeing, oh, in 20 years, I'm going to be married to, maybe to an American and I'm going to have American children and I'm going to be really integrated into my community and it's going to be really hard to leave. That's just a forward projection that most of us don't do. So it's not clear to me that interior enforcement has this effect. But what we know from the border enforcement literature is that people who are most likely to be deterred are those who don't yet have strong ties in the U.S. And that seems it seems likely that any deterrent effect from interior enforcement would affect people who are not very well connected to the U.S. already, where they're not in danger for their own safety. And so, you know, there may be more on the margin of coming or not coming. They could kind of go either way, and this might make a small difference to some of them. But if someone has family members, close ties in the U.S., if they are either desperately poor or fear for their physical safety, they are likely willing to make that trek to the U.S. Uh, regardless. Yeah. And in terms of people who do have criminal backgrounds, okay, so the enforcement mechanisms were more directly targeted towards people with criminal pasts. Uh, I think during the Trump years, but, you know, this some of this might have started in the Obama years. But during the Obama years, something that also happened was that crossing the border itself became criminalized. In other words, when we're talking about people with criminal backgrounds, I think normally we think of, well, like somebody who has... I don't know, some kind of a violent past or a drug-related charge or something of that nature. But now if we're also including immigration-related violations themselves, it expands the number of people who are going to have a, and I'm putting this kind of in air quotes, a criminal past, right? Like those are two very different things. But now it means that the number of people who can be picked up and possibly deported for having a criminal background includes the event that brought them to the country in the first place, which is very different from what we think of when we're talking about somebody who comes to the country and then commits a crime. That's right. If you look at the official reports uh, coming out of ICE, which is the enforcement arm uh, for Department of Homeland Security on immigration, the report always celebrates what fraction of the people have a criminal history. 
among the people who were removed from the U.S. or deported. And it's usually a very high fraction, both under Trump and under Obama. And part of that is because some of the mechanisms we have for identifying potential undocumented immigrants go through the jail system and people do get arrested for a crime. But as you mentioned, some of those criminal histories are really what historically would have been considered civil immigration violations. So crossing the border itself after being turned away is a felony that then puts you in this pot of people who are quote unquote criminals, but not dangerous or um, the types of criminals that people might be thinking about when they hear that there were however many thousand criminal immigrants deported. Another important point here is that even among people with a quote-unquote criminal history that's not immigration-related, most of those crimes are pretty minor. So things like speeding, things like not paying your parking ticket, things like a bar fight, for example, which you know might, you might consider a little more serious, but it's a really very small minority of people who are deported with criminal records that are for serious, that what most people would consider serious crimes that would be a threat to public safety. And that goes along with the literature that's very strong in showing that immigrants in general have lower rates of committing crime than the U.S.-born population. And it's just a very small group of people who are out there committing serious crimes and being deported for it. Yeah. It's also kind of a reminder that for a lot of people, the illegality of their status is the result of a policy choice and That's not right. necessarily something that that they've done, if that makes sense, right? Um, and there's a there's a study that you cite in the in the book, finding that conferring legal status brings with it an earnings premium of thirty five percent. I want to just pause to explain this to our listeners for a second. What this means is that when somebody who is unauthorized goes from being an unauthorized resident to somebody who can legally be here and therefore can legally work, they're able to make 35% more money in the jobs that they now have access to out in the open in the formal economy than what they would earn without being granted that status. And that is a massive, massive change. And it also has all kinds of follow-on consequences for them and for their families, for their livelihoods, and also, I think, for local economies. So can you kind of speak to that as well, please? Sure. Um, That 35% number is from a study that is one of several studies that have tried to estimate this. As you've mentioned earlier in this conversation, it's a little hard because we don't, in most of the data sets we look at, know whether someone is authorized or unauthorized. We just know whether they're a citizen or not. And so that 35% might be on the highish end of the actual gains. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%. It's hard to say. But regardless, it's definitely the case that legal status is a, a plus from the perspective of um, an immigrant's livelihood. And of course, their the livelihood of their family. That, of course, has spillover effects for all the things we talked about before, the use of the safety net, the spillovers into communities. I think another perhaps underappreciated benefit of that legal status is that it puts U.S.-born workers who might be in that most vulnerable group on more equal footing. If an employer can hire an unauthorized immigrant, pay them below minimum wage, not have to follow workplace safety standards, 
that really could be a disadvantage for a U.S.-born worker who is competing with that, that undocumented worker. If everyone sort of leveled up to the same playing field, that concern about getting around our basic U.S. worker protections is lessened. Yeah, and let's talk for a minute about businesses themselves because they're obviously an important player in all this, right? I mean, we've mentioned the agricultural department, but there's businesses all over the place, all over the country that might at some point, you know, hire undocumented residents as workers. And over time, like, you know, there seems to be a lot of fluctuation in terms of how much the federal government targets them specifically versus the undocumented residents, uh, worksite raids. You know, in some cases, there are laws mandating the use of something called E-Verify, which is this kind of automated system where you have to match the information given to you, if you're a company, by a potential worker you're going to hire with existing Social Security and other administrative records. And if they match up, then there's no problem. The person is here legally. You hire them. And if not, then you get a notice saying that this person might not be fully in compliance. I got the impression from your book that, in general, businesses don't much like E-Verify, <laughs> right? Which is understandable. They don't like more, you know, more bureaucratic administrative hurdles to go through, right? Um, but what has been sort of the overall effect of just the existence of E-Verify uh, on, like, how businesses approach the issue of undocumented residents and, and them as potential laborers? Yeah. So E-Verify is a federal program that is optional in most places, for employers to use. It's a way that employers can check in on the legal status of someone they might be potentially hiring or who might work for them. There are states where some workers need to go through the E-Verify system. In the most common scenario, it's workers who are state contractors or somehow have business with the public sector. In Arizona, I believe right now is the only state, although I should check that, that requires every employer to use this E-Verify system for any hire that they do. It should be noted that the E-Verify system does help firms distinguish between workers that have authorization and those that don't, but not perfectly. So if someone submits information that is correct, but isn't the correct information for them, <laughs> uh, it's unlikely to be caught by the E-Verify system. So as long as this is a legitimate person, it might be maybe your cousin who has a social security number and a driver's license. As long as the information looks correct from the perspective of the federal government, they're not doing fingerprinting or other kind of biometrics to really distinguish between individuals. And so there is a lot of error in the system. There are a lot of people who past the E-Verify system who are not authorized to work, in fact. Um, but it does tamp down on hiring of un undocumented workers. And as you said, it's the sort of awkward dance that our economy in general does with the undocumented workforce, which is explicitly, we explicitly state that those workers should not be in the U.S., that they're not allowed to work. But our businesses especially some businesses, are very reliant on the, that workforce. And regulations that prevent firms from hiring any undocumented workers would be really devastating, and firms know that. And so it's also interesting to me that the political party that is most aligned with an anti-immigrant posture is also aligned with a pro-business posture. And so we have this sort of um, conflicting <laughs> desire to say that we're tough on immigration, 
but also not be so tough that our businesses can't thrive. And so what we see is is firms, of course, don't like to be required to use E-Verify. And it's not as effective as it could be. And that might be a de facto policy choice that it kind of lends us some plausible deniability that lets us say we're being tough on immigration. But in fact, we don't want to be so tough in immigration that we actually don't have a, a workforce. All right. Well, Tara, uh, this has been a great chat and we're going to leave it there. But I do want to note for our listeners that the book has so much more in it than we were able to cover in just this one conversation. And so I would strongly recommend that listeners check it out if they want a really thorough and nuanced and comprehensive understanding of a topic that is so often and so widely misunderstood, and which also leads to so many heated, contentious debates where those nuances are typically lost. And and so I think a book like this can really help the conversation. It can make the conversation better, more humane, more aligned with the truth. So yeah, thanks so much, Tara, for your work and for joining us on The New Bazaar. It was a lot of fun. that's our show for today. You can find links to Tara's book and to her other research papers in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. It's the best way for others to find out about us. And that ensures that we can keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.